Hello pod pals and welcome back to Best Girl Grip. I'm your host Nicole Davis and this is the podcast that navigates the film industry through the lens of the women doing just that. First of all I think let's just take a moment to pat ourselves all on the back for making it through January. It's always hard isn't it really gearing up the energy to do another year um, but we're on our way and that is all we can really ask for. Uh, I also forgot to say last week but I just I wanted to say thank you to everyone who reached out and said kind things about the 100th episode and also to everyone who just downloaded it and, and listened to it. I'm always grateful for the listenership uh, but particularly so to have people kind of yeah recognise the 100th episode. But on to this week's episode. It's a fun one and I'm excited to share it with you. I have not one but two guests in the form of Henry Henrietta and Jessica Ashworth. Hen and Jess are screenwriters, directors and twin sisters. Having penned their first script at 15, they went on to write Olivia and Jim, which came third on the Brit list in 2011. In 2012, at the age of 24, they were featured on Screen Daily's prestigious Stars of Tomorrow list and began writing on TV shows such as Fresh Meat, Dixie and Killing Eve. In 2018, their BFI-backed debut feature as screenwriters, Tell It to the Bees, starring Holiday Granger and Anna Paquin, premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, and they currently have two other adaptations in the works, alongside a TV series for Amazon. Meanwhile, Hen and Jess have branched out into directing, and their short film Night Bus, a supernatural horror starring Susan Wakoma, is now available to watch on Short of the Week. They are also working with Helen Gladders, who produced Night Bus, on developing their directorial debut. I had a blast chatting with Hen and Jess, who are both very smart and funny and have lots of wise things to share about their experiences as screenwriters since arriving in the industry almost a decade ago. I think the thing that struck me most about our conversation was not only how willing they were to talk about some of the difficulties or disappointments inherent to being a writer, but also how they could frame that in a way that is helpful to other aspiring writers and filmmakers. And so I think, you know, the result is that this conversation is full of really good nuggets about breaking stories and figuring out characters and moving between or on from projects as well as what it's like to write in service of another person's vision as opposed to being in service of your own imagination. I highly highly recommend that you check out Night Bus and also watch this space for many more exciting projects penned and or helmed by Hen and Jess but without further ado this is episode 102 of Best Girl Grip. So I'm wondering if you recall a moment where you kind of learned that screenwriting was a career and that you wanted to do it. Yeah, that's a really nice question. We actually talked about this, trying to remember. Mm. And Henny remembered that. Well, Hen, actually, you tell the story because it was you that discovered the book. I mean, we grew up in a cinema in a very filmy house, like our dad um, and our mom, actually, both big cinema lovers. And, you know, plunk us down in front of films that we had to see from a really young age. So I think there was an awareness of cinema in our house. So I always loved films. But we, I remember we must have been maybe 11 or 12 and we were obsessed with Jane Austen. And I found there's a sort of like, in some like second hand or like, you know, one of those second uh, cheapy bookshops on Charing Cross Road. There was like a box set of Emma Thompson's diaries when she was shooting Sense and Sensibility. And I must have read that. I don't know 10 times and I would watch the film and read along the script alongside it and like it's all her whole story and yeah I just loved it I mean I was obsessed with 
I loved Emma Thompson. I loved Jane Austen. And then, yeah, I think the idea that that's what she did was something that really clicked for me. And then also I had a subscription, my dad got me a subscription to Empire when I was sort of 13 or 14. And then that was really, I think, when I decided to identify as I'm in- I am someone who likes film. But yeah, and then, Jesse, you were talking about... Yeah, well, the, as well. I'd, I'd actually forgotten that the Emma Thompson book was first because my answer to this question is always we read R- William Goldman's books. We were just big readers and we just picked up, you know, Adventures in Screen Trade and What Lie Did I Tell? and I love those they really capture my imagination and they're they're sort of half memoir but they're also actually quite instructional they're like there are still things he says in that book that I still use now things like come into the scene at the last possible moment but I Mm. think that's when I just we realized that was career and then I'm wondering you know did you train in screenwriting and and how did you learn your craft and how do you still hone it I guess you know is there something that you do to kind of keep in in tip-top shape Um, (laughs) yeah well Henny went to I did film at uni but that was very much like a theoretical um it was at Sussex so there's theoretical kind of um film theory type of uh studying me I was an actor when I was little like yeah the child actor but no we never did any proper I mean I didn't even go to university so uh we didn't ever really do any formal training we really learned on the job we got our agent really young and you know we started getting jobs when we were sort of 22 23 and Really, we, we kind of learned by trial and error. Um, and yeah, I, I think we're still learning. I still learn new things about how to manage my time and how to like not panic, how to, how to like not despair when the first draft doesn't quite work. I'm, I'm, we're honing all the time. I still feel like I'm new to this sometimes. I think that during film theory at uni, I got a basic idea of from really academic point of view of like film structure maybe but really yeah watching films probably reading William Goldman and things like that I have even to this day I don't read screenwriting like handbooks that much like how-to books I think it's just yeah watching stuff we have used yeah. save the cat though oh yeah know. save the cat is one I, is the one sometimes it's, I think it's one of these things whenever we talk to like young writers were like don't use anything slavishly like don't use anything like it's like it knows it's better than you but sometimes there are things when you're stuck that you go back to and go oh yeah that's clever and it sort of pushes you to to write the next scene or the next the next page and I, we use uh, save the cat a bit like that I'll, I'll go back and read the um you know the 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 acts and the um the movements that he uh he describes and sometimes they'll be like oh yeah that's what this should be right mm. okay yeah if you're stuck yeah, and particularly if you're working out plot just go like okay this is <laughs> what the shape of a film is supposed to be let's pretend that this is going to be the shape of a film and let's tr- act as let's try and plot it into that and that is that it just gets your brain working we also quite early on in our career although it didn't feel early on at the time but now I look back at it we had a really lovely like succession of meetings on a script with Kate Lees, the script editor. And she was so helpful in sort of just she just said a few things that I still use now, which is like things can't get better till the end. Right at the end, page 105. Everything should be going wrong until then. Which I think is so helpful because I think sometimes you get you mistake the last act for wrapping up. And it, it, it's so helpful to remember that. She also said as a writer that you should feel like you're sitting in a lawn chair throwing awful things at your character as your character just <laughs> walk along. And I love that. I love that idea. Yeah. And I think I sometimes think about that a lot as well when you're writing. It's like what you're doing is your character is like a sort of pinball and they're sort of rolling along and then they're pinging against something that you sort of put in their way and then pinging it. And like, where does that send them? Okay, after that, which obstacle is going to send them in a different direction? Yeah. And you sometimes get moments in scripts where you're like, oh, I really need this character to leave the house. She won't leave the house. And everything I write to make her leave the house feels fake. And then you kind of go, okay. She's not going to leave the house. What happens if she doesn't leave the house? And then it actually helps inspiration if you just surrender to the fact that you can't make plot happen. It has to make sense with the character you've created. Mm, But it sounds like the best way to go about it, I guess, the the approach that 
you you can constantly be learning and it's not there's not an end point at which you're like right now I'm a screenwriter it's kind of you're always still adding to your knowledge base um yeah. you mentioned there that you you got an agent quite young and I'm wondering you know how did that happen yeah so <laughs> I, was, I actually I, I hate telling this story because I feel like it's so not helpful to anybody who might ask me this question it's just not instructional it was mm. so lucky we were so lucky so our family's not a, a, a you know we're a, a filmy family but we're not in the industry you know my parents were not we didn't live in London we lived out in the sticks we did not have actors or producers in our family but we just always wanted to be I wanted to be an actor Henny wanted to be a director from when we were like nine or ten we just decided and uh, although I was sort of going up to London auditioning for you know little ads and, and I did some TV and film as a, as a as a kid actor. We didn't know how you would become a, a theatre person, a film person. But our dad did some work for a guy who was a, a PR for DreamWorks, and I remember just being like, "Oh, there's a it's a he works in film." And um, my dad being excited about it because he told him about his children who liked films, and I think he came to the house and one of us made him a cup of tea, and you know, it's like the film man is here. Dad, my dad is you know classic sort of dad. He sort of probably was bending Peter is his name, bending Peter's ear about his talented daughters. And eventually we ended up telling this very kind man, Peter Dunn, he's still a PR, a film PR, all about the script we've written about Shakespeare. And he probably at the time, just to be nice, was like, oh, well, send it to me, you know, and I'll read it. But amazingly, he did read it. And he, I think he, to be fair to us, I think he must have seen something in it because he did meet with us, have coffee with us, gave us notes, told us what he liked about it, what he didn't like about it. And with that sort of encouragement and reality, we finished it. And when we finished it, he said, okay, well, I'll see what I can do. And he sent it to a few agencies. Um, and I think, you know, it was passed over by the um, by all the big agents. But then it was found by Camille McCurry, who was a junior agent at the time at the United States. An associate agent, I think. And we met with her. We didn't meet with anyone else. And we really <laughs> liked her. And she signed us when we were like 21. With sort of no clue of how lucky that was really what I don't like about that story is I'm like so yeah that's how it happened I think the thing that I can take from it is I don't think we realized it but it was quite tactical because Camille was right at the beginning of her career and at a point where she was taking on new clients which is not always true of all agents all the time Mm -hmm. so when you're looking for a new agent you do kind of need to be a bit like oh these people this woman takes on people like this or She's not got anyone mm. like me on her books. You know, it's quite useful to do that. She was newish and she and she was sort of building her career and her list at the same time as us. She wasn't that much older than us. Mm. I think, you know, also it was, we had a thing to, sh- you know, when finally someone who fell into our laps who might be able to like encourage us, we did have a script and we had an idea. Like, I think finish your thing as well is good advice when you're just starting out, have the thing to show people. I also, you know, looking back, this only occurred to me recently that we were really young and we were girls and we were twins. And I think that probably was a gimmick in a way that I hate. I hate that. Like, I don't want to be Mary-Kate and Ashley. I want to be taken taken seriously (laughs) as a filmmaker. But I wonder if some of those agents were like, oh, that's interesting. Pre the sort of (laughs) sudden interest in young women uh, that is slightly more common now. So I think there was possibly an, an interest in us as a sort of little novelty that maybe got us some meetings and through some doors at the beginning as well. I'm intrigued by this partnership because it feels like it's an (laughs) organic thing that you know you've always perhaps written together is that the case and also how has it evolved you know and and perhaps how how do you write together logistically? Mm. Yeah we've always written together you know since we were little I remember going on holiday with my dad or not really a holiday because we were working and he was listening to us write a script and he was like it sounds just like when you used to play with your Barbies when you were little 
<laughs> he was like, because you're going, no, no, she wouldn't do that. She'd do this. And he was like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Dad. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we've always written together. I think you yeah. did. You wrote a play on your own, didn't you, Jesse? And you went off and was an actor. We did. We had four A's separately. And I obviously <laughs> went to uni and did my master's. But we just always eventually, if one of us is interested in, a, in something, I was writing a script and at some point I just said to Jesse, oh, do you want to get involved? Like we always just would share it with each other. And, and it was kind of a game in the beginning, you know, we were just playing. And yeah, well, it's harder now, not harder. Uh, we don't live in the same city. So and we do a lot on Zoom and I can't really speak to how other partnerships work, but it does help that we're sisters. I think it makes us quite frank with one another. Also, we, we're just not going to break up, you know, it's, it's we're never going to get to that point where you can scream and scream <laughs> at each other, but it, we're probably going to start to see each other at Christmas. I think that we do tend to know each other a bit better now. I know that we get tired at a certain point. You can't push through it. Those are useful things to know. I know that if you are literally writing and coming up with ideas, it's quite hard to have someone breathing down your neck. You know, not that Henny breathes down my neck, but it's looking at me, you know, going, oh, that's not the right word. Mm. So it's sort of better when you're creating the first draft to do it separately and then swap. Um, usually we will come up with the story together. We'll break it together by necessity, because to be honest, most production companies or directors or producers we're working with will want to outline. You can't really go straight to script. It's very rare to do that. Mm-hmm. So we will have had to come up with a outline already mm. so we tend to outline together then write separately not the whole thing we tend to swap halfway through or when we, the other one kind of loses enthusiasm if someone's done a first draft then when we get notes they will be like okay well the other can be the point person on the second draft so it's it yeah. gets melded I, I guess a follow-up to that would be are there any kind of um shared strengths or weaknesses that you recognize mm-hmm. that like you know you think oh one of you is better at this so okay you handle this you know part of the script or or is it very much again a, a symbiotic process where you're both feeding into all elements yeah I think there definitely are it's like both so there definitely are things I think that maybe I enjoy more I, I find less of a chore and maybe Jess might think I'm better at and vice versa. I think Jesse is better sometimes at writing really beautiful lyrical stuff. And I quite enjoy writing like action and kind of like non-dialogue scenes. You know, we both do it, but sometimes I'll be like, oh, Jesse, you do that. Bit. And, yeah. and vice versa. And but I also think that the strengths kind of like go back and forth. Like sometimes one of us will be absolutely despairing and then you'll call the other one. And, you know, if it's Jess, I'll be like, Oh, I actually didn't feel that. I thought it was really good. And and suddenly Jess would be like, oh, great. Okay. And we'll swap. So I think in terms of like attitude, it kind of swaps around. Sometimes someone is very pessimistic. Someone, sometimes it's the other. I mean, it's constantly satisfying to find that we tend to come up with similar ideas or we really add to each other's ideas. And when we start talking about something, it does just sort of snowball. And we go, oh, yeah, no, no, you're right. That should happen. And it's a really satisfying thing to be so on the same wavelength as somebody. But also, yeah, I I find that I can sort of just like shut my mind off and dream and start writing sort of poetry and the sort of beautiful sort of sad bits I love writing. Whereas Henny's, Henny's so good at structure and the overview. She'll go, hang on, hang on, hang on. If this goes here and this goes here. This is what this character will be sort of what this is what we're saying about the character in five scenes time. And I'll be like, oh, God, you're right. I hadn't even noticed that. <laughs> And then coming back to kind of linearity, I'm thinking about your first writing credit that you got uh, with Fresh Meat in, in 2013. I'd love to know how that opportunity came up. And I guess also given that you came up in kind of a filmy family and that you were kind of film lovers first, did it feel like a scary leap to kind of be inducted into writing, you know, via the world of TV? So first things first, I mean, it, it was absolutely on our CV, our first credit, but we'd had two specs option by the BFI by that point mm-hmm. and also we were doing um we had a spec option by a, a private production company as well so those were the sort of we felt very filmy at the time <laughs> none, none of those three films ever happened um as so often happens in this industry but that was where what we were preoccupied with at the time 
And this came up, um, we were already huge fans of the show. We were just the right age for it. And also just fans of Sam and Jesse in general. And I think our agent just put us up for it. It happens every now and again, you get a uh, really exciting TV opportunity and we went in well we just sort of I think they'd read one of our specs our spec weird which is a teen movie which has actually I remember being being embarrassed at the time because I felt like it was so their style of comedy that it was almost a bit embarrassing they were reading it (laughs) Um, (laughs) but you know they loved it and we went in and I think what was lovely about that meeting was we were at such a sort of young age that I didn't it didn't even occur to me we wouldn't get a job for one thing which is a great way to go into um, any meeting I hadn't even thought that one through and also I was talking to them about ideas I'd have for this show I loved like I was down the pub so I was like oh you know it would be really cool because I always thought that blah 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 had a bit of a you know chemistry and maybe this would happen and they were really good at the time at hiring really new writers or that was my impression you probably have to ask them about if that was something they were actively doing they tended to have like some really green writers every series so I think we kind of they wanted to give us a shot and it was kind of an incredible experience in that we were in a room with like Tony Roach and Penny Skinner and obviously Jesse Armstrong and Sam these incredible people Tom Basden and feeling you know I think I remember I got I pitched one idea in the room and it got a huge like roar of laughter from everybody and I was like on cloud nine for like three days <laughs> like I barely spoke and I had one idea and everyone was like ha 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 oh my god it was it was a buzz and yeah and I think day. as well as um having gone into the meeting like with lots of ideas because we love the show I mean my my comedy sort of like sense of humor was created by like to a large extent Jesse and Sam shows I loved like the thick of it and peep show so like I think we got on and we just got the sensibility of it yeah um, and I don't and, think but yeah it was it was it was a huge yeah. thing for us at the time we were so excited yeah. to do it and, and we, so overwhelmed we were so new to everything at that point although we'd had those three specs optioned it was still it all happened within about a year or so that it didn't feel like oh this is tv now it just felt mm. like it was all new all exciting all a, a learning experience really and then obviously you've written on Fresh Meat and, and Killing Eve as well. And I'm interested in when you're coming into a show that is established and as you say, you're pitching ideas and, and trying to gel with a sensibility that already exists. You know, how do you go about doing that and staying true to perhaps your originality, but also trying to pitch stuff that is going to fit within that world? Well, I think, I mean, so when you both of those shows, the thing that you did was we went and had a meeting with the, with the showrunner. And we just got on. It's obvious we had a similar sense of humour. And you could sort of tell that from the fact that I loved, I loved Phoebe Waller-Bridge's work, obviously. So there was a sense when we met, like, oh, okay, this is not going to be, we're not in two different worlds. But then, you know, you're so much in those TV shows guided by the producers and the, and the, the head writer. So what you do is you have a, a writer's room, which tends to be either, or what we've always done, tends to be anywhere between, you know, three days and three weeks, depending on how much money the production company has. And in that, time you know your whole little bank of writers with the head writer there tends to have the producer there too pitches ideas so at that point you're pitching you're throwing in ideas having read all the scripts having watched the show if it's out knowing what the characters and you're pitching them but you're pitching them to the head writer and so but so there you have an opportunity to throw in your ideas and but but it's very much honed by like the whole room and the people that have been on the show for a little longer than you and then what tends to happen is that they go away and read everything, all the notes, everything that happened in that writer's room, um, the producers and the head writer, and sort of like wrestle it together into, into a story outline. And then they allocate you your episode and they tell you what's in your episode. So, and that will be done by the head writer. And then it's the process of delivering the draft, getting notes, delivering the draft, getting notes. So by the time you see it, it's been so guided by the head writer. Yeah. 
and the producers that I, I sort of feel like they would pick up on it if you were doing something that felt jarring quite early. Mm. I, I trust them, essentially. It's, it's their show. And in those situations, you definitely feel like you're, you're you know, you're, you're a, a pen for hire. You're, yeah. It's a very helpful, it's a fun experience. I love having other writers to talk to because as a writer, you don't tend to get a lot of social <laughs> interaction. And um, I love the creativity of it. And it's nice to just go in, do a job, go out again and not have, you know, the whole experience, the gut-wrenching experience of the production. But, you know, it, I think that it's always the head writer honing it that tends to make sure. Yeah, you're, you're always in, in service, I think. you What you want to do is be there, just brains for the head writer. Just like, yeah. this idea, would you like this idea, would you like this idea? Let me, let me do that for you. So I don't think it's a question of, for me, like, how am I going to dazzle with my own originality here? You're trying to be yeah. a theme and you're trying to be like, we're here to help you because you've got 10 episodes to write and that's a very daunting thing. That's always how I feel about it. I love working out story with as many people as possible. I love other writers, but also usually, as Jess says, you hop on and you hop off and it gets made and people see it. And as, as Jess has sort of alluded to, this project we've been working on for years that no one's seen, but we can say, we worked on Killing Eve and Fresh Meat and people have heard of those because they were already up and running. So that's always gratifying. So conversely, when the only thing you're in service of is your own imagination, I'm wondering, you know, what kinds of stories are you interested in telling? So an unusual perspectives, which I, I know sounds really Big. generic and general, um, but like I, I'm often thinking like, well, how did that person feel in that situation? We do tend to gravitate to stories about women, period dramas, although I'm we're trying not to take on any more period dramas because uh, they're so hard. We love. I, I think it's because it's easier to establish stakes in something that's happened in the past because everyone gets, oh yeah, this is a really important moment in history, or oh yeah, yeah, that was a huge thing that person managed to pull off. I like things that introduce a world that yeah. has, that that, you, that is removed from from our world, so, and period drama is a genre in that way, in the same way that horror or science fiction are. And I really like to write horror and science fiction as well. So I'd say there's a through line there, and that I like to right in a world that isn't like it's not immediately obvious what's going on you kind of have to explain it mm. we're not very autobiographical writers like not overtly like if yourself gets in there but I I quite I'm usually a little bit removed we seem to also often like to write about two people negotiating a relationship not always romantic and like not always a healthy relationship but it seems to be a pre- we've noticed it's a preoccupation which is quite interesting because mm. we're obviously quite an unusual writing partnership yeah mm. I've noticed a lot of our things are like one really loud and sort of foul-mouthed monstrous monstrous strong (laughs) character and one quite like quiet awkward nerdy one (laughs) which is I I don't think I would say that was our personality maybe it's part of like part of both of us and I also realized with like a bit of a blinding flash that's also slightly true of Killing Eve which is a bit weird because obviously that's not our show at all I don't know what I think relationships are the most interesting thing I mean I, I think all films are really about relationships um, and how two people are negotiating love or hate or fear or grief. I feel like I write a lot about grief and sadness, trying to work out things for myself, trying to sort of find a, a, a way to put them into words. Like, as Hen says, not in a particularly autobiographical way, but in a sort of way that I'm like, why am I, you know, I'm definitely preoccupied with working that one through. And, and also I think, you know, we were nerdy, shy teenage girls and children and film was such an escape for both of us that I do feel a deep commitment to writing for a certain type of person. I found film so, such a comfort. And, and TV, I found it so important to me to find people like myself 
on screen. I mean, you know, things like <laughs> the 90s Little Women, I watched about 700 times. So I feel like that's my dream. Yeah, nerdy write, girls. We're interested in nerdy girls. <laughs> is, yeah, is to write something for my people. I want to have the effect on people that I felt film had on me as a child. It's funny that you mentioned not writing autobiographically. I was having a conversation with a writer the other day and, and we were sort of discussing that old adage of like, write what you know. And we kind of mm. came up with this idea of like actually writing what you felt as being like yeah. much more kind of true, yeah. I think, to how writers explore things nowadays. Oh, that's I lovely. love that. I think as well, was it Amanda Palmer said that some writers like put themselves into a blender and some people put, some writers put the setting on one and some writers put the setting on 10. Mm. But it's always you a bit. And I'd say I'm, I'm more like seven or eight rather than one. And yeah. then thinking about your first feature, Tell It to the Bees, um, that was an adaptation of a novel. So mm. I'm wondering how you got hold of the rights and, and what that adaptation process was like. So they weren't our rights, actually. We were working with VFI, as we said, on a couple of specs of ours. And um, it was Annabelle Jankel, the director, had optioned it many years before and had been very keen to, to make it as her feature um, for years. And they'd actually had a script that they'd sort of gone as far as they wanted to with and what they were looking for a new writer to completely sort of restart. And it, it was optioned by the BFI or the BFI were funding it. And so I think because we were already working with them, they recommended us. So that sort of came to us. And, you know, we were, again, quite early on. I think we were about 24 when we read it. And I, I thought it was a really beautiful book. And I, I, I love the tone of it. I think Fiona Shaw has this, like, such wistful, sweet tone. And she really sort of gets into the head of the little boy, Charlie. There's a real, that's the thing for me that I really loved was just this, this, this little innocent boy seeing these things. And also <laughs> Lydia's depression in the film, I really chimed to. I, I, as I said, I love writing sadness. And so that really spoke to me. And so, yeah, I mean, and also, you know, to be frank, it was a slightly financial decision. We weren't really in the market for turning down <laughs> work at that point. Yeah, I think that's sometimes something that doesn't get maybe spoken about enough and should be acknowledged. Like, it's a job and we were offered a job and it was a lovely <laughs> job. Um, and, well, you know, we got on so well with Daisy, uh, also the producer, and AJ is great as well. And we, like, um, we love the book. And I think, yeah, in terms of approach and the adaptation, I don't think, me and Jesse aren't, like, slavish adapters. I think that film is one thing and books are another and they can't, you can't like wholesale, um, put, like put one into like make one thing, a book into a film. I think what you try and do is, what I always think you're trying to do is trying to create in the viewer of the film or the reader of our script, the same feeling that I got when I was reading the book. And that might mean doing totally different things because there's a completely different language and my hope was to yeah recreate the feeling that Fiona's book gave me in the script but I also see her book and our script as kind of sort of separate things they ended up being quite different and what was the experience of seeing it made like you know was that anything that sort of caught you off guard about that process or that you just weren't expecting yeah I mean definitely I mean it's it's a series of negotiations surprises gifts and disappointments I think one of the things that's quite like writers must understand is that it becomes the director's story so very suddenly. It goes from, you know, you're the writer and everyone defers to you. The director's there, but they tend to defer to you too. It's your baby, your ideas. You know everything about these people for two or three years, maybe more. And then suddenly the minute you're up and running, they lose your number. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not in a, certainly not in a um, deliberate way or in any sort of... Um, 
I say that with with love they're trying to make a film and the director is the one who's like answering all the questions but it, that can be something that you have to get over to be like okay no that's fine I guess nobody cares what I think about this and obviously we, we've, we've we've always had directors who wanted our opinion on things but it's at some point they they just have to get on with it and you know it's this time whether money you know uh, we can't do this we can't do that we had to drop this and it gets made you know they say a film is written three times like script shooting and then edit and you know we're only part of the, the first third of that so yeah. that was something yeah yeah that you have to get used to that this sort of perfect piece that you had in your head does get altered and you know and it's, it's there's lots of other people's ideas um, which aren't necessarily you know better or worse they're usually better but it's it's different and, and yeah the way that it becomes different as other people look at it and you go oh that's not how I saw it at all um is a strange one as writers to get your head around it's also it can be kind of magical there were times like you know we did visit the set where I remember like watching them work and being like this is exactly how I had it in my head. That is so weird. And it's also now having done a bit of directing ourselves, it's so easy to understand how breakneck filming is and how the script becomes like a map, basically. You're mm. like, you're just sort of grabbing onto it for dear life and contending against and weather and time and money and just trying to trying to, to lay down all of the beats and shots and everything that you, you promised you'd get today. And it, it, that means the script has to be rock solid because there's not really much time for art in, the, in the, I mean obviously there is but you were just trying to make your days just trying to get through it and if you are clear and your script is clear then you know art can happen but um you've got you've got to prepare and so that's what the script is for really um which was useful to understand it's very easy for us having just been in development for about five years to think all every all filming was was writing yeah. You referenced it there that you are now flexing your muscles in directing. Um, was Night Bus your first short that you directed? Yes, well, it was. We made a short with Kate Heron years and years ago. Right, yes. Um, we were the writers, but also we, we worked really closely with Kate. We were there the whole time. We actually ended up sort of being producers on it because it was, you know, a pretty fun and low budget, chaotic, but good. Um, so we were on set, sort of essentially being producers for the film as well. So... And Kate, I mean, Kate was an incredibly helpful person to be experience, like to be seeing at that time. I remember being like, because she's our age. Um, I remember being like, oh, if Kate can do it, I can do it. She's very softly spoken. Mm. She's very like she walks into a room and you think she's just the quietest person there, but she's just knows exactly what she wants to get done that day and she will just quietly, yeah, politely get her way every time. It's amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. That was real good apprenticeship I feel like yeah. for directing but she yeah our first actual direction was um Night Bus, Night Bus so. yes which we did two years ago and was part of the reason of kind of moving into that arena because you kind of wanted to be part of all three thirds of the writing process you kind of wanted yeah. to experience the fullness of it definitely that was why I think uh, we wanted we could troll freaks and we want to do it <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't enough just to write a script we wanted to be able to tell everybody what to do as well mm. it was great I really enjoyed it I, was, I mean it was a really hard shoot we, it was night shoots for three days in December which was really stupid looking back as we were <laughs> freezing you know we we didn't have enough time as no one everyone ever does and it was cold and exhausting but it was, I was just buzzing. I loved it. I loved every minute of it. You know, because I was an actor as a, as a sort of teenager. I had always loved being on sets and I remembered mm. how much I loved it. The sort of, mm. it's just like a family. 
you know, on this theme of directing, I'm wondering, you know, is the dynamic the same as, you know, when you're mm-hmm. writing? How did you figure out how you're going to be on set? Because again, like when you're talking about your writing process, you're in separate rooms and although you're on a Zoom, there's a, a chance for space, I guess. But when you're directing, you're very much there on okay. set together. So how did you kind of establish boundaries, I guess, with each other? Yeah, we talked about this a lot in the lead up to it because we were really worried because, yeah, when we're writing, it is just sort of often a process of gentle bickering with each other. We had a friend who was a comedian who wanted to write a script and he asked to sit in with us to like observe us writing together. And we asked him at the end, what did you think? And he was like, I think I'm never going to write with my brother. So, yeah, so we were like really aware, but that and, and that's fine. And we're sisters and it's fine. And there's just two of us in the room. But we were very aware that like when you're on set and there's 20, 50 people who are trying to be listening and trying to get direction from you, that you can't you can't spend 20 minutes arguing about it. That's like going to be very, very difficult to sort out. So we prepared and prepared and prepared. We worked with our uh, DOP, Susie Salabati, who's just amazing. We did, you know, we worked out every shot. We had shot lists basically memorized. I knew it backwards. Um, so that, and we decided kind of everything before we went on set. We also decided Jess was going to work with the actors more. I was going to work more with the crew and the camera. And then once you're on set, it was good we had that uh, blueprint. But ultimately, I think we didn't need to worry as much. Like it did end up being a bit more um relaxed often just I you know I wanted Jesse's opinion on like did does this setup work what do you think she has opinions uh, she you know the same with me and the actors and you know by the second or third day we were splitting a bit more and also in it turned out that because we I think were very aware of not dithering and not arguing it almost helped there were it made it better there were two of us and two brains because sometimes if I wasn't sure of the answer for a question that was being put to us by someone mm-hmm. If Jessie was sure, I'd just be like, well, go with her then. Like, if one of us was certain, go with the certain one. And if it had been just me, I might have did it for 20 minutes. But I was like, oh, Jessie has an idea. Okay, no, go with Jessie, because I don't have an idea. So that was helpful. And I don't think we mentioned that it's a horror, but I'm wondering Mm. what interested you about working in that medium and why perhaps you feel it's exciting or or relevant medium through which to tell women's stories. Yeah, completely. I think, well, I think as people like more observant than us have observed, there's women there's so many women in in horror it is a good mm. medium for women it always has been and obviously we grew up in this sort of late 90s early 2000s with Buffy and Scream and things like that where you did tend to have some really empowering role models as far as the 90s got for women and I think I don't know I think that one it's a really fun way to explore a metaphor for something more irrelevant something like you know break up a relationship puberty grief capitalism it's a helpful slightly more fun way of of, of describing something important and, and playing out an idea also you know two things I think that women's uh often women's experience of life is nightmarish the things that they want to describe are heightened uh our bodies are often sites of you know pain and politics and you know the constant reminder of sexual violence that media in the world gives us. I think there's a lot of quite horrific things that women tend to play out. And then, of course, if you consider like more marginalized women, black women, Muslim women, gay or trans women, uh, that's even more true. And sometimes horror feels like an eloquent way to express that sort of pain and fury. I also think we're both quite anxious people. I constantly, if someone calls me after 9pm, I assume somebody's died. Um, <laughs> I have this weird thing. I... If I'm like doing the washing up or slightly lost in my own world and my boyfriend comes up behind me, I jump. 
like and he'll be like I didn't do I wasn't and I'll just scream I don't know why I'm just constantly terrified there's a, there's a murderer in the house and I think there's something about anxious people it's almost relaxing to watch horror it's like a safe way to kind of like act out that anxiety I think yeah I think also I find horror fascinating maybe this is like the film degree part of me talking I think it really reveals what society finds scary and what society kind of like rejects in a really interesting way what what is it we find frightening and what is it yeah it's too much for us and I believe you're directing your first feature or preparing, I'm sorry, to direct mm-hmm. your first feature. I'm wondering what that looks like. You know, how do you prepare to, to gear up to do something that obviously requires more of you than perhaps mm. a short? Well, we're writing. So that's the easy bit because we've done this a few times mm-hmm. now. So we're sort of writing. But what's really fun is we have our amazing producer, Helen Gladys, who we did our um, our short with as well. Um, and what's so lovely about this process is that it's ours and we just get to sit and talk with her about ideas. And it's a very different thing to every other job we've done where we've either been commissioned or there's been a director attached who has their own notes or um, it's, it's someone else's show. Or, or, you know, Helen tends to start our, film, our, our sort of notes meetings with, well, how do you think it's reading? How do you think it's going? Which mm. is all was quite a new one on us. We're like, oh, is that the? I guess that's the most important question at the end of the day. <laughs> like whether or not we like it, we're happy with it. That's honing and honing the script, and also just getting used to knowing what we want to say and why we're writing it, and making sure it's consistent with that all the time. We're starting to talk about cast. We are doing some design elements. We're sort of talking to designers and things because it's, you know, it's a big horror. So there's quite a lot of like, don't want to give anything away, but some creatures and things in it that we need to, and and that helps with the writing process as well, because the more you start to understand the mechanics of how you're going to create these things, the more you can write to it. And then you referenced at the beginning that you'd written, I think, three spec scripts before coming on board on, on Fresh Meat. And obviously that's not quite rejection, but, you know, it's 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 disappointment. And that's kind of, I guess, inherent to a writer's mm. career. So I'm wondering, you know, how often is that happening and how do you move on from it? You know, how do you put something to bed and say, OK, like that's not going to happen today or, or in the next five years, but that's OK? Yeah, I mean, I think first off, the heartbreak is real. It's devastating and it's, it never gets easier. And we completely feel it a lot. It's always awful. It's always awful. It's always <laughs> upsetting. I think, you know, we are, we have seven other things going on. It's probably part of it. Obviously, we're, we're sort of, you know, it's, I know that's not possible for everyone if they're sort of a, a, a sort of more starting out stage of their career. You can always have other things you're doing. I think don't have yeah. all your eggs in one basket. I think I'm really lucky to have Henny. I think that there's two of us. It means that not only is there someone who completely gets it, but there's also someone who you can kind of make dark jokes with, like, well, all right, then, well, that was a wasted year, wasn't it? You know, and, and remaining professional is really hard. I think that's something we've, I've found I've really isolated in the last few years. It's like, I always have to get on the phone and act like I don't care. And I do care. Because obviously you have to be like, no, no, I completely understand. Of course, of course, you've, you've, you've got your certain amount of money you can spend this year. And I say, I just want to cry. So that's a Yeah, it feels like personal. It feels like heartbreak. Like it feels like, it feels, does feel like being dumped. But it's not, it's a job. So you have, you can't like, mm. <laughs> you can't scream at them. I think mm. also as well, I have learned to have a small amount of perspective on it compared to how it was when I was 24. I think we've failed and been rejected a few times and had what seemed like the worst possible thing happen. And you do, you survive. And also you think it's like the end of your career and it's so awful. And it's like, oh, well, actually no one but you remembers it after a while. Mm. And it does, it's not, nothing's ever, this is an industry of people hang around if they want to. Like you can, yeah, you can, you can weather the storm usually. 
I also think Hen, you said something really eloquent about like your collaborators. Like it's amazing and really lovely. You get on the phone with your development producer or your collaborator in whichever way, and they're just endless optimism for the seventh draft of a film or a TV series that's just been rejected by every single channel. It's hard not to stay upbeat, not to meet their energy. Go with me here. I'm going to try and extend a metaphor that you just brought mm. up, and that's the idea of having eggs in your basket. So, mm. you know, obviously, if you're you've got all those eggs, you're trying to sit on them <laughs> at the same time and nurture okay. them. You know, how do you sure. go about doing that and ensuring that they're all getting the kind of love and attention that they need? Okay, okay, hang oh, on. Oh God, that's... I'm going to try and continue the metaphor. <laughs> no, don't, 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 don't. We'll be here all night. You mean like juggling projects, basically, is what you're. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh yeah, God, can... that's incredibly hard, and we deal with that. Well, I guess there's time. two of us on the nest so that helps so we can cover like twice as many eggs <laughs> and that's genuinely true we have to because we split the money as well but we can we can do a lot more than than if there was just one of us but apart from that yeah it's a constant battle because uh, projects last a sort of um malleable amount of time you never know you might send it off to your producer and they get back to you in a week and you might send it off to a producer and they get back to you in six weeks or months and yeah, so you can't massively plan ahead and you often they want you to be available the minute that they come back to you. You have to keep multiple realities in your head all the time. Like, okay, well, if they come back, this will happen. But if they don't, this will happen. Yeah, it's helpful to, well, we talk to our agent about it a lot, about like, okay, so we just need to be aware of this. We just need to be aware of that. And yeah, it's hard because also it's how you pay the bills. So you can't, if someone has come up to you and said, we need you to do another draft and that's how you're going to get paid. Even if you've got, a passion project that's a spec that you wanted to write this month you kind of have to be able to juggle we talked to our agent about scheduling a lot you know we're on the phone to her sort of sometimes twice a week like okay so we didn't realize these people were going to be ready for us so soon so we probably shouldn't have promised that other thing to that other those other people earlier this week and she has to be like right don't worry okay I can talk to them yeah we'll do this and there's just a lot of that a lot of renegotiating a lot of moving around and you yeah you just have to live in several realities as, as Henny says and I think I'm sort of I try to be as honest as possible I think this is something that um we've had to learn is that I think that you're sort of expected to pretend you only have one project at a time because obviously nobody wants to think that on the back burner and you know we genuinely love everything we're doing so it's not like we we're playing favorites but I do think as much as you can going the thing is we've got another script that's in front of you it's helpful because then you know when they come back to you the next day was notes they're not like but hang on you said that you were getting to this tomorrow mm-hmm. like you get into less hot water if you're honest yeah and it's easy to if nothing else it's easy to remember <laughs> yeah. I sleep easier at night if I'm telling the truth it's hard to have holidays. I think that's one of the things because like you think you've got a week off and then you haven't. But we try to be quite strict about weekends and evenings because of that, because it's quite hard to take, quite hard to predict when you might be able to take a week off. And given that you're juggling multiple realities, you know, both for yourselves and what your kind of work future is going to look like, but also realities for your characters and the worlds that you're creating, how do you stay creatively sharp and nimble, I guess, able to kind of move in and out of those worlds as and when you need to? I think it always takes me a day or two to get back into something and then it starts it's funny you can sort of really tell at some point you when you're about two days into something back into something or starting something you start you know being chopping carrots or in the shower you'll be like oh yes oh no that's what should happen and you, you your mind is working even when you're not working that's when you've, you're back in it um it, I think we have to we start to know ourselves a bit better you have to know like this is actually going to take me two weeks because it's going to take me two or three days to sort of 
remember how I was feeling when I wrote this last time and you know stop writing the horror that I was writing last week and get into this romantic comedy so you sort of have to be a bit realistic about the time it takes and kind to yourself I think I used to think that I could work from 6am to midnight and just put the hours in and don't worry the script will be there because I'll just keep working and you actually can't you just can't I'm old now as well I'm horribly old um <laughs> and I just don't have the brain power to work beyond a certain yeah. point in the day and so I think we've also to- become aware that like it takes you a day or so um at the same point again I'm going back into a sec- a third draft of our feature that we're writing and um yeah I spent a lot of today on whatsapp um on Instagram making myself a nice lunch tidying my house and I think you start to hopefully know that that is part of the process that you're sort of landing back into the to the new thing and like Jess says not expecting that you're just going to be like you know change your computer immediately no need to like recalibrate just start straight away and I I mean you said how do we stay sharp I think there's something I realized is that if I have my head down at the computer with no outside influence for weeks and weeks and weeks just working I'm not a very good writer. I do need to read and watch films and talk to people to actually have something to say. I need stimulus. So Mm -hmm. that's a way to to keep sharp is to not always be working. You know, the minute you watch a film that's amazing, it just changes the way you write. You know, you just have a, you read an interesting article or something, Mm -hmm. you suddenly have something to bring to the the work that you wouldn't necessarily have had a week before when you're just a writing automaton. Yeah, you need the food, I think, a lot. And that yeah. it, it, it like inspires you. Also, practically, if you just need to get into something and you don't have time, music helps. Yeah. I also, I have a shame to say I have one of those apps on my computer that like um, blocks like Instagram, <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> when all else fails, I put that on <laughs> for like three hours because I'm yeah. not, I'm very good at prevaricating. I trick myself as well. I'll be like, I'm just going to do a few hours uh, and then I'll, I'll have a lovely lunch. And then, and then you tend to actually want to get into something. You do it for five hours and you're perfectly happy, but you have to trick your brain a bit, a bit like when you go for a jog, <laughs> you're only, only going to be gone for 15 minutes and then you actually manage to push yourself a bit at the end. Oh, that's my experience anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, let's see how it goes. And then coming to the, towards the end, I'm wondering if there's something that you consider to be like the biggest learning curve of your career so far. So, you know, I think, to consolidate everything we've said actually we started very young we were completely clueless we were not from a sort of you know I didn't go to university um we weren't from a very a background that felt we didn't feel born into it or particularly confident in our own intellectual abilities because of the first like decade of our career we were writing other people's shows very much writing to notes you know we, we sold our, our two specs but it was a lot of learning how to take notes from the BFI and and from directors and the film we made as much as I love that film it was very much you know a collaboration with, with AJ I think we looked at an adaptation very, as well and an adaptation yeah. we got very very good at being good girls who take notes well who know how to interpret someone else's vision mm. you know how to be, not have ego about it go no you're right we'll redo it no you're right well if you don't like it yeah and I think the biggest learning curve of my 30s has been my opinion is as valid as anyone's and actually I have a lot of experience now and I know what I'm talking about and actually knowing that I I need to say no I'm sorry I I think you're wrong because we've got into into hot water before tearing our hair out at a note that I know patently is silly but I know I've been told to to change it and I think now it's learning to go well tell me why you think next I think you're wrong is Mm. as collaborative and as helpful as just saying yes sure we'll do it ready to sort of fight my own corner a bit and and be Mm. much more confident in my own words yeah like learning to actually like hold just that like 
little kernel of this is this is what I want to say, and this is what I'm saying, these are my thoughts, and this is my vision. That's actually something we've we, we've had to sort of relearn to do because yeah, we we were of, of I was of the opinion for a long time it's like well it's my job to make this make sense no matter what they've told me to do. When you're writing for hire and you're doing an adaptation or you're working on someone else's show, that's totally appropriate. But now we're moving to directing and trying to author our own stuff. With yeah, I think it's actually like try, it's important to unlearn that. It's mm. also true even if you're writing someone else's stuff. Actually, that gut feeling of no, I don't think that is right. It's still worth expressing, even if yeah. because nobody necessarily. I think I used to think there were lots of grown-ups in the room who were very clever, and I was just this little idiot trying to trying to stay in the room. Nobody knows what they're doing. So going, mm, I think you're wrong there. It's worth piping up and sticking to your guns. I was watching the um, the Hollywood Reporters Writers Roundtable the other day oh, cool. with um, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and um, she was talking about how when you're an actress with ideas, you sort of often have to feed them to people with a spoonful of sugar um, in order to make them. Eat. And it kind of chimes because I guess as a screenwriter and probably as a woman screenwriter, you're trying to make everything easier for everyone, and so you sort of take their notes, you know, as perhaps um, dutifully as you can, without maybe always questioning or clarifying or or, or prodding them to be like but what do you mean by that or actually no um mm. this idea that you sort yeah. of just make the process really kind of smooth yeah quite often you're like yeah you have to be like easy to work with and well-behaved and professional and those are all good things to be but sometimes I think yeah particularly women we feel like we have to be that to a fault and finally what is a film from a woman director that you think is a bit of a hidden gem or just something that you'd like to recommend today Oh, we we did, yeah. Hen, you talk about it. We we came up with this together, but but Hen's going to talk about it. We agonised over this one. So, uh, summer nineteen ninety three, the Carla Simon film. I love that did film. Oh my god, I saw it at the London Film Festival. Was it three or four years ago? It came out, mm-hmm. and I was just spellbound by it. I just love her. I yeah, I'm, it was a debut, and it was so beautiful, so assured. The way she followed that little girl around, um, and just it felt like it was just life she was filming. And yeah, she's got her next one coming out this year. So I'm very excited to see yeah. that. So I felt like it was a timely one to bring up. Mm. Yeah, I remember you saw it at the film festival. And for some reason, I didn't go. And you're like, you have to watch this, Jess. So I think I got a screener or something from somewhere. Oh, actually, no. Yeah, at the time we shared an agent. So that's probably how lucky us. I'd, I'd not met her or anything, but I was just spellbound. It's just incredible. Mm. It's so incredibly immersive I don't know how she got a performance like that from that child it's funny I think we've always been drawn to writing children and and I I think I don't know why but I feel like I remember being a child more than some people do um that confusion and sort of how when you're deciding about the world and she Mm. just amazingly captured that I don't know how she did it It was so beautiful that feeling of a little girl just wandering around and you're a child and the world is huge and you're sort of following your own little like imagination and she just mm. seemed to just film that and that was incredible mm. and it's so warm yeah and um, kind as a film it's, it's warm and kind but I think for me the thing that really struck me about it was how astute it is to children's tendency to sometimes be cruel or to act out mm. in ways that they don't always understand or know why they're doing it but they have kind of just the way that she was with her younger cousin I, again mm. in the yeah, that's performance, I thought that was so cleverly done and I, I related so much to it as, yes. as, a, <laughs> as an only child that was like oh my god I recognize that kind of behavior in myself when I, I, when really... I, felt like I wasn't getting the attention <laughs> interesting yes I think maybe I think the film is kind to the character, like very understanding of this little girl that is quite difficult. Yes, I like seeing the slight darkness in childhood. Like children aren't always perfect little angels. Um, and you're there, you know, they're kind of, they're id. 
they're working from it. It's, you don't have the niceties that adulthood, adulthood does. And this is a story about a child who's in a lot of pain and it's totally understandable how she behaves. Yeah, I, I really like that. Yeah, the spikiness of that little girl. Exactly. Well, I thoroughly concur. And uh, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Best Girl Grip. If you liked what you heard, please do rate, review and subscribe. It really does help to get the word out. If this is your first time listening, there's a whole bunch of episodes to keep you busy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. But if you're up to date, hold tight and I'll be back next Tuesday with a brand new episode. (laughs) 